Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop for tickets, for sporting events, music concerts, and more. Use the promo code HANGUP in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first purchase. Or shop online at SeatGeek.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 13th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss the right way to slide into second base and all the replay news from the Major League Baseball playoffs. Then we'll be joined by author Robert Andrew Powell to discuss what some, I won't say who, are calling the worst day in the history of American soccer, also known as Saturday, when the USA lost to Mexico 3-2 to and separately missed a chance to qualify for the 2016 Olympics. Finally, we'll talk about the deaths of four high school football players this season and the sadly predictable way that football youth fatalities are treated. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is away this week. I'm alone in the District of Columbia. Joining me from New York City is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Mike, I am Mike we're in Pesca. Los Angeles over the weekend? It's true. Twitter feed says you bought a ticket to game one of the NL Division Series at Dodger Stadium. It's true. Would you like me to We're, go into more detail? Yeah. All right. So I'm standing there um, next to a guy with a lot of tattoos and uh, big Dodger enthusiasm. And I'm a Mets fan. But, I, you know, I wear my fandom lightly. I try to be respectful, only cheering for my team, never putting down the other team. In fact, I'm two rows behind a guy, a Mets fan, with two of his kids. Kadir comes up after bungling the play and left. He starts razzing him, starts razzing Kadir in, in Dodger Stadium. Like, that's going to get on the good side of the Dodgers. Anyway, I, I talk, I'm talking to this. I talk to everyone and uh, he knows I'm a Mets fan 
and the Dodgers are losing, and he's getting a little upset. Not at me, but I could see his uh, anger. He's venting to other people, and his friend's like, you better get out of here. And I don't want to read too much into his tattoos or whatever, but he seems like he could be a dangerous guy. He seems pretty thick. It's are you equating like, tattoos with danger, Mike? He, there was a lot about him that said danger. And then I remember that story of the poor Giants fan who was beaten to death, and uh, his friend's like, listen, trust me, get out of here. You got to get out. And the, and the panic in this guy's voice, I'm like, hey, good to talk to you. So I leave with a win, and the Mets leave with a win. It was a great night. It's a great story, Mike. Really. Yeah, thanks. You really set me up for it. Especially I when I said what I wanted to talk about was I touched off the most epic coffee spill in the history of coffee spills here at Slate. It's the, it's the Exxon Juan Valdez. That's how bad the coffee spill was. <laughs> All right, sitting next to Mike Pesca and his spilled coffee in New York and filling in for Josh is Emma Spann. Emma is a senior editor at Sports Illustrated and the author of 90% of the Game is Half Mental and Other Tales from the Edge of Baseball Fandom. Tell the truth, Emma. You picked that title to get a sales bump when Yogi Berra died, didn't you? Yeah, I was playing a long game there. <laughs> it uh, worked, I'm sure, <laughs> through the roof, right? Last couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Definitely, definitely heads of the bestseller list. Um, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, welcome to the show. Emma, we do a little thing called Whimsy Watch at the beginning of, uh, of the podcast during the National Football League season, looking for tales of whimsy from the NFL. I have a few. Mike, I'm sure you might have a couple. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with the uh, Buffalo Bills. After committing 17 penalties in week four, Rex Ryan gave players bracelets that said, yes, sir, on them. A reminder that those were the only words they should use when talking to officials. Whimsy? Not whimsy? It had elements of whimsy. Elements. Hang-up listener Matt suggested that Rams linebacker Darren Bates putting on a blonde wig while playing the role of Packers linebacker Clay Matthews in practice was whimsical. Mike, you replied to Matt with one word, forced. Yes, forced I whimsy. say old-school whimsy. I think you're setting the bar too high. Uh, I think that. I mean, putting on a wig, come on. Emma? It's trying too hard. It's broad. Yeah, I'm going to go with a little bit gross and maybe not that whimsical. <laughs> <laughs> gross? <laughs> well, you know, because the, the implication there is, oh, he's like a woman, right? Is that... I think he was trying to look like Clay Matthews. Oh, okay. like oh, so Clay it, wasn't like, it wasn't like a long blonde wig then? Well, right. it was a long blonde wig. Trying oh, to look like Clay Matthews has beautiful locks. In that case, yeah. yes. I'll give him a maybe little he bit of... Bought it, maybe he bought it from the Hulk Hogan superstore, Clay Matthews, almost going full Hogan. All right. In that case, I will give him some whimsy there, yes. They, they were locks of love. Are, you, we have to. I don't. It's not whimsical, but whenever they doink a field goal in, like the one that won the uh, Bengals game, I want the stats on doinks in versus doinks out. Well, that is my next whimsy watch. Oh, okay. Cincinnati won on a 42-yard Mike Nugent field goal. It deflected off the left upright. After the game, America's astrophysicist Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson wrote on Twitter that the Bengals benefited from the Coriolis effect. Here are his tweets. Oh, my God, this is awesome. Today's Bengals winning overtime field goal was likely enabled by a one-third inch deflection to the right caused by the Earth's rotation in the northern hemisphere. Earth's Coriolis force deflects airborne north-south projectiles to the right about a half inch per 50 yards. The Bengals stadium isn't oriented exactly north-south, DeGrasse Tyson wrote, and the field goal was 42 yards, yielding a one-third inch deflection, not half-inch. You know, if they play a game in the southern hemisphere like they do in England, I bet we'll still see the Coriolis effect because it's a copycat league. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more whimsy, Mike? That's I'm it. Whimsy I'm down. Down. That's yeah, it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, Jamal Charles tears his ACL and has lost for the Wait, that's totally not whimsy. Uh, that's not whimsy. Yeah. 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 
All right, on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will discuss ESPN baseball commentator Jessica Mendoza's appearance as a booth analyst in the Yankees-Astros wildcard game and the torrent of online misogyny that followed. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com hangupplus. I am exhausted from paying attention intermittently to four baseball games on Monday. The Royals came from four runs down to beat the Astros by three and force a deciding fifth game. The Blue Jays romped to win their second straight over the Rangers and force a game five. The Cubs hit a postseason record six home runs to take a 2-1 series lead over the Cardinals, who lost the right way, by the way. And the Mets carried Ruben Tejada and his broken fibula into the dugout and then whomped the Dodgers 13-4, going up 2-1 and helping people talk less about Chase Utley's ridiculous rolling block on Tejada. Emma Spann, you are a baseball writer, a writer of baseball. Let's talk Chase Utley. MLB suspended him for two games. He appealed, but to no one's surprise, didn't play on Monday night in New York. Two issues here, the replay decision by umpires that awarded Utley second base and changed the game, which feels like old news now, and the decision by Joe Torre to suspend Utley, which effectively disrespected both the umps and the replay people. All right, three things. The likelihood of a new rule to effectively outlaw the non-slide slide. Please give us your take on this. Make yeah. it hot. <laughs> yeah, there have been some sizzling, some sizzling Chase Utley takes. There have been a lot here. of takes. Yeah. Uh, my take is more, is more lukewarm. I think that, that slide was definitely over the line. As such, you, you understand why they wanted to suspend him, and it's not one of the world's greatest injustices. But this is something that Chase Utley's been doing his entire career, more or less. Um, usually, no one's leg gets broken, but... Lots of players, you know, maybe not lots of players. Some players have slid like that for a while now. So to suddenly suspend him when in the past baseball's usually sort of let that go, um, you can understand why he's appealing, and I think the union has a case there. That said, yeah, that was that was not an okay slide, and uh, and you get why baseball's trying to, to change the norms there. And do you think we'll see either, if not necessarily a new rule, then at least a clarification and new enforcement of the current rule which is for the best because everyone wants to see good players play and not get their fibulas broken. Agree. I mean, Thomas Boswell in the Washington Post on Tuesday called the takeout slide one of the dumbest and most unnecessary vestiges of the 19th century that has clung to baseball. It's more dangerous now because players are bigger, stronger, more athletic. I, I can't see any reason not to protect, even in these rare situations, both the slider and the slidey. Well, it's the how could you say it's the dumbest? I, I agree with you. I think it was a dirty play. I think everything around the umpiring in the moment, I perhaps understand why the runner at first wasn't called out, which would have ended the inning, because that's almost never done, even though it's clearly in the books when a player purposefully tries to do a takeout slide. Right, they both should have been called out. Well, <laughs> So let's go. Yes, they both should have been called out. I understand why the runner at first wasn't called out. The fact that Chase Utley was called out, forget never having touched the bag. When the umpire makes an out call and the guy just trots off, why would it default to the runner getting the bag? And 
why wouldn't it at least default to, you know, Tejada was a lot closer to the bag than Utley was, but why wouldn't it default to what the call on the field was? That ruling made no sense. And if you use replay with the neighborhood play, you're going to get more guys' legs broken. So yes, I agree that extremely dangerous plays shouldn't happen. But to say it was stupid, it's not stupid because it's endorsed by the culture of baseball. And a reason why a guy like Chase Utley, who has diminished skills now, is on a team is because of those qualities like leadership and they define leadership as doing that and you know what save the game for them so take away any ethical dimension to call it the stupidest thing every dodger fan loves chase utley chase utley's proud of what he did and until the culture is changed by an actual rule that's enforced you can't call it stupid you got to call it inevitable yeah i don't know i mean i will say from his perspective you know like you said he it saved the game for them i don't think he was trying to break the guy's leg. I think he did something that was dangerous that could break the guy's leg. And, you know, I think I'm sure he would have been happier had Tata gotten up and, you know, had gone on with the game. But uh, but no, I mean, it, you know, it worked, basically. And there were previously, before the suspension, there hadn't been any real penalties. And even a two-game suspension is, you know, it's worth it if you won the game. I mean... You know, I think what, what annoyed me the most was the sort of the, the faux toughness, unwritten rules default mechanism that some commentators took after this. C.J. Nitkowski on Fox was was one of them. Um, you know, he surveyed a bunch of his former uh, colleagues in Major League Baseball. And he wasn't quite as unanimous as Nitkowski presented that they thought that Utley was in the right and that, that there was no harm, no foul in what he did. I mean, if, if you're going to protect catchers, which Major League Baseball did a few years ago, doesn't it also make sense that in the interest of preserving athletes' careers and, and preventing injuries on what really is a marginal and not frequent um, occurrence in the sport, you know, why not? move to protect the health of your employees. And, and I don't think anybody is lamenting the fact that we don't have full-on collisions at home plate anymore. I don't think we would miss the, you know, the, the barrel slide into second base in the least. There are ways to break up double plays that involve actually sliding into the base and also sliding toward the fielder to try to throw him off. No, it's it's an easy fix. I mean, the college game has a rule for this. It's it's very simple. It's it's you know, and as with the catcher, I'm sure you'll have a period of adjustment where you have to figure out exactly you know exactly what the parameters are. But no, it's it's a fine fix. I mean, I one thing that was interesting about this is that even you know current players and former players totally disagreed about whether that slide was okay or not. You had Cal Ripken on the broadcast saying it was a you know it was a hard clean play. Ron Darling saying next to him was like. No, it wasn't. Um, you know, they had, you know, Jose Reyes was saying it was a weak slide. Shane Victorino was saying it was great. You know, so even among the people who know best, there was no consensus here. So that's why I think you have to, you know, get in there and clarify that rule. I All think right, that, I think that uh, there was a breakdown. I was trying to suss out the breakdown. So you have to throw out all the teammates like, you know, Victorino is a pal with Utley from Philly's days and all the guys who are affiliated with the Mets. Dylan G didn't think it was uh, that safe a slide. But I did note, and I do think the unwritten rules of baseball, you know, most of the players who are old school, white guys brought up in American minor leagues, they mostly supported uh, Utley and the Cal Ripken opinion. But I noticed that most of the, many of the guys who were Latino players, like Pedro was the most prominent, thought that uh, it was a dirty slide. I wondered why. Maybe it's because, I don't know, back to the stats that you were talking about, or maybe Josh was talking about most fights being from between white players mm -hmm. and Latino players. I think there is a cultural difference. And I think it may be true that even though the Latino players go hard, there is a sort of sense that, you know, let's, 
let's put this in perspective. And A, it should be fun. And B, no one should be losing their livelihood. Whereas maybe some of the especially Southern white players have a little bit more of a um, unforgiving Football take. mentality. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to some other games. Emma, you covered games one and two of the Blue Jays Rangers series. You said you're heading back for uh, game five. Yeah. In game four, the Jays were leading 7-1 in the fifth inning when manager John Gibbons brought in their ace starting pitcher, David Price. Price threw 50 pitches and was effectively eliminated from participating in the deciding game on Wednesday in Toronto. Our friend Ken Rosenthal at Fox Sports tried to explain Gibbons' thinking and Gibbons' thinking wasn't exactly convincing. Uh, it mostly came down to a shortage of lefty relievers. Um, but it seems like his handling of David Price has been kind of weird. Yeah, there's there's a couple things going on there. Um, you know, w- one is that it's true that he has, you know, with Cecil out for the season uh, with a torn calf, he doesn't have lefty relievers. Loop was also gone yesterday. But it was a puzzling move. You kind of felt like maybe he really didn't want to start Price in Game 5 and that this was an excuse almost. That He didn't say that. That's speculation. But um, he did say he thought Dickey was sort of losing, you know, the edge on his knuckleball. Um, I didn't really see that from home, but Gibbons was a, was a bullpen catcher for many years, so it's certainly possible that he saw something there that, that wasn't clear to the average viewer. But, it, yeah, it was a strange one to bring him in with a six-run lead. It's not as if it was a do-or-die moment. It was, you know, you wondered if he was trying to get him win, bringing him in with one out to go on the fifth. That would be strange. He said that wasn't it. But it was definitely, that was a, that was a head scratcher. And Stroman was great in game two. He, he could be great, you know, tomorrow. And then this will all be a non-issue. But it was definitely one of the odder moves we've seen this, this fall. I want to say what all the broadcasters are saying during every game. I want to see what StatCast says about that. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I thought Dickey was doing what knuckleballers do and the ball was mostly knuckling. He saw uh, he, he so Gibby Gibby saw that the knuckleball wasn't knuckling. He brings in Price. Price pitches terribly like it was being hailed as I guess you could say that we've always criticized managers for not doing drastic things in high leverage situations and it was a high leverage situation. It wasn't really though. They had a six run lead, right? Yeah. Six run lead. Well, it's gonna be as high a run leverage situation as that game gets. So you burn the guy who's gonna be who's your ace who was the most important player, um most important pitcher since he was acquired, and you, I think, give the message that you have no confidence in him for Game 5, which is a really weird message. And if he's good enough to relieve in Game 4 in that high leverage for Game 4, but you're right, not that high leverage situation, wouldn't you want that bullet in your gun for Game 5? So to me, it was a total vote of no confidence, and it's being portrayed as like, Price did what he needed to do to get it done. He gave up three runs in three innings. He was terrible. How does that help his confidence? I think it was a bad managerial decision and a bad outcome, and they won the game, and I think the Blue Jays are just that much better than the Rangers, and I think they'll win game five. But it didn't set up. I don't see how you could defend it on anything. It was was poorly conceived, and the result wasn't as good as some people are saying. And and Ken took the analysis even further, saying that they rested Price uh, at the end of the season when the Blue Jays wound up losing four out of five to lose potential home field advantage in an ALCS. Home field doesn't matter. In the ALCS. Well, you know, I think the Toronto fans would say we'd rather see one more game. Um, And he's a free agent. 
And does this change how he may feel about going back to Toronto, whether he would have gone back to Toronto anyway? I mean, they're, they're talking, talking about him like, you know, he's some struggling schmuck. Right. I mean, this is the probably, you know, I don't think he's going to necessarily win the AL Cy Young, but he's a close second if he doesn't. Yeah. You know, I think the ERA leader this year, I mean, he was so great all season. He really got them here. And then it's just it's just strange to see them. I guess yeah, I don't think Gibbons likes the matchup between him and the Rangers, who are you know a team that, that can you know knocked him around in Game One. But still, I mean, this is one of the best pitchers in the game. I think you have to if you if you can't trust him, you know, I I, I don't know what's quite what's going on there. Do you believe right, in a uh, po- do you believe, wait, wait, I want to ask him a question. <laughs> do you, do you believe in you know all the fans will say that he's just not as good in, in the postseason, and they'll read something mental into it. Do you believe in that? Not really. I mean, you you know, it's, you can never prove for sure that you know. I do think you know, mental stuff absolutely affects the game, and, and it's it's not impossible. But with both him and Kershaw, I think, you know, it's a, it's a small sample size. First of all, you're talking about a handful of games. He actually, against good teams. Against good teams. Postseason teams. He's also he both he and Kershaw throw a ton of innings. He threw you know he threw well over 200 innings this year. I think he also led the league in that or came close. So, you know, it could be fatigue. It, you know, it's also these. There's this kind of a different mentality in the postseason where you're going up against the other team's ace often, although not in this case with him. But, you know, you have very little margin for error. You can't quite throw your normal game. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that, that could explain it without it being some kind of mental block. And it's not like Kershaw pitched poorly. He gave up the solo shot no. and then Baez let in those runs. So what is three runs in six and two-thirds, but two were let in by the reliever who didn't relieve? No, Kershaw pitched, I thought, you know, on the whole pretty well. I mean, and Price, even, you know, even though it wasn't, the result you're hoping for from you know a Cy Young contender didn't it wasn't terrible in that that game either. I mean he he hung in there, he kept them in the game, he went seven innings. He's a great competitor. He, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, he, both he he's definitely someone who can minimize the damage even when things aren't aren't going well. And that Blue Jays team can at any moment sort of jump all over you and and get a couple runs. So no, I mean I yeah I, I do think it's weird to have a pitcher like that in your arsenal and not use him in the elimination game. All right, we've got two series to quickly touch on. Royals-Astros. Can someone tell me why I suddenly hate the Royals? They, they feel like they're becoming like the Cardinals. Is there something in Missouri going on? Did you see first baseman Eric Hosmer? That's it, his face. You don't like his grade face. Grade school level, <laughs> no one believes in us essay on the Players' Tribune. Yeah. We weren't a fluke. We're the Kansas City Royals. We're here now, and we're going to be sticking around for a while. I seriously hope these guys lose. What what I loved about that essay was where he said, okay, maybe no one said we were a fluke, but you could tell they were thinking it. <laughs> uh, you know, teams do that for a reason. I do think it's an effective motivator. Every team, even the Yankees used to do it. Oh, no one thought we could do hey, it this Jeter, year. Jeter runs the Players' Tribune. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's 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 an oldie but goodie. I mean, I thought it was it was kind of silly there. To be fair, no one picked the Royals to win the World Series, really. Um, and oh, my God. Including the Royals, <laughs> including they were disrespected, including me. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's not as if they were being, uh, you know, mocked or, or overlooked. I mean, so those, the, the yeah. two worst places to be are no one believes in us and everyone believes in us. Then we have expectations on our shoulder. <laughs> uh, so of the four teams we haven't talked about, only the Cardinals are the ones that are unsympathetic because, you know, they're not the lovable losers. So, yeah, I would take either the Royals or the Astros out of that one. Now, the Cubs, it's not just that the brand name, the Cubs, are a compelling case. The actual players are extremely fun to watch. Jake Arrieta didn't pitch great, or maybe the wind was blowing so out, uh, so far out that, you know, long fly balls were all leaving the park. But Jake Arrieta has put together an amazing run since June, and he's a competitor compelling pitcher to watch. His motion is so damn explosive. He doesn't unfurl easily. He just 
everything about his pitches has bite. I I mean, it's weird because I'm talking about him. He had a he had his worst game, but what a just exciting, compelling pitcher to watch. And I watch want to watch him going forward. And as a Mets fans, as a Mets fan, Cubs Mets. That's I think that's what America wants to see. I think as a, as a television network, Cubs Mets is yeah. what America wants to see. And I think there's something about the Cubs and the Astros that really is admirable and likable, and it reflects a sort of modern and fun bottom up approach to building a strong organization. Young players are better than older ones and why the Yankees approach is anachronistic and sort of unfan friendly and as a Yankees fan I was kind of rooting for the Astros to win the wild card game because I thought it would be more interesting for baseball as a sort of objective journalistic observer the Astros were a more interesting team to watch for the next month potentially and I think we saw that with the Cubs on on Monday night yeah I, I would agree with that I mean they're I grew up a Yankees fan but I you know, the Astros are just more interesting at this point the Yankees team this year was just kind of, yeah, they weren't bad. They were better than expected. They just weren't that exciting for for whatever reason. I mean, the thing with the Astros and the Cubs, they're smart organizations. They have been, you know, very smart and effective in the way they've rebuilt. I think some fans, you know, understandably didn't enjoy the years of tanking that led up to this success, uh, which is, I think, a reasonable complaint that, you know, they the Astros really were not trying to win at all for a few years there. It's a reasonable and complaint until you look at Carlos Correa, and then right. you're like, all right, it's worth it. I'll yeah. take him. Uh, yeah, it, it worked. <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the reason, I'll take him. Right. It makes it an interesting debate as to whether, you know, whether that is somehow unsportsmanlike or, or you know, just, just smart or baseball. really, really smart. Right. Yeah. Mm. And ultimately, you know, for the, in the long term, very fan-friendly. Um, well, if, if it pays off, then yes. All right, we're going to uh, talk U.S. soccer in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor this week, SeatGeek. SeatGeek helps you find the best value when you're looking for tickets. Download the SeatGeek app and use the promo code HANGUP, and you'll get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Let's say you want to go to Game 4 of Mets Dodgers at the stadium formerly known as Shea. When I searched no, SeatGeek... No, no. The parking lot's formerly known as Shea. In the parking lot, (laughs) formerly known as Shea, yeah. All right, when I searched, SeatGeek said that on its scale from awful to amazing, the $1,855 seats in Section 13 right behind home plate were an awful deal, but those in Section 336 out and left for 282 were a great deal. What about a top the apple? I got to say, atop the apple would be a great deal yeah. if you were me. I, I would love to see If they the put apple. seats once, above once, the Green Monster, put a seat in the apple. I once sat inside the Green Monster for a game for a column I wrote, which I may have mentioned before. Yes. And that was like the best night of my life. Is it true life. that they relieve themselves in there? Someone has relieved themselves yes. in there. Yes, yes, it is true. Anyway, back to SeatGeek and, and, and the Mets. There were no amazing deals, Mike Pesca, which was kind of weird because, you know, the Amazons. Right? Ah, Yes. They should have just made one deal. You got to believe that there'll be some amazing deals. You do. Uh, the ratings guide is part of SeatGeek's deal score feature. It ranks every ticket on the market with a 1 to 100 value score and plots the best deals on a color-coded interactive map so you can easily identify the best tickets in the building at a glance. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop. Just like you go to Kayak to check on flights, when you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available for that game all on one page. SeatGeek's mobile app also makes the ticket buying process seamless and easy. Once you find a ticket you want to buy, you can complete the purchase with just two quick taps. There's no faster way to buy tickets. Again, download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code HANGUP, and SeatGeek will send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. 
Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code HANGUP. In Pasadena, California, on Saturday night, 93,000 people filled the Rose Bowl to watch the men's national soccer teams of the United States and Mexico play for a spot in the 2017 Confederations Cup in Russia. That is a year-out World Cup warm-up event for the host country, and playing in it is better than not playing in it. The U.S. won't be playing in it because it was outplayed through 90 minutes of regulation and 30 minutes of extra time and fell 3-2 to on a 118th-minute wonder goal by Mexican defense. Paul Aguilar, USA head coach Jurgen Klinsmann said afterward, and I quote, I felt the game was very even. He was about the only one on Grantland. Robert Andrew Powell wrote that, quote, it was a thrilling match that broke my heart and reaffirmed my love for the USMNT, but the loss felt deserved and it cemented 2015 as the American team's Annus Horribilis which it has been. Robert Andrew Powell is the author of the most excellent book, This Love is Not for Cowards, Salvation and Soccer in Ciudad Juarez. He joins us now. Before we get to the game and the state of American soccer, Robert, I have to tell everyone that you road trip from Miami to Los Angeles on the road in a car with Howler Magazine editor George Qureshi to watch the game, and you are road tripping back. Where are you now? <laughs> we're, uh, we're in Walker, Louisiana, uh, just east of Baton Rouge. Um, the road trip was a lot more exciting when we were looking forward to the game. Um, now it's getting really kind of tedious. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the game. You know Mexican and American soccer. You were at Azteca Stadium in 2012 when the U.S. won in Mexico for the first time. This is our rivalry, and it's a real rivalry. What struck you about the atmosphere at the Rose Bowl? Well, it was fantastic. It, it was the reason why I wanted to go there. Um, it was mostly Mexican fans, which... Um, is to be expected, but the Mexican fans were as excited to be there as we were like the American, uh, this is as good as it gets for either country. I don't think either of us are going to win the world cup in our lifetimes. It was a real game in America's best stadium on a beautiful night with real stakes. It was, um, you know, it was enough to make me drive across country to go to it. Well, if that's the, if that's the uh, standard, then that's quite a game indeed. So I was in Los Angeles at the time, and the town was a buzz. I had about six or seven friends who went to the game, away game indeed. Everyone came away saying we were fantastically entertained. But what does this mean for the United States' chances? All right, the Confed Cup, we won't be going to that thing. Things don't look good think, going forward. I, th I think it's a big loss. I mean, going to that... The U.S. has had its greatest soccer achievement was reaching the final of the Confederations Cup in South Africa, losing to Brazil. It's a great test. Klinsman had said, you know, this is how you get acclimated to the country. This is how you get used to playing top teams that are invited to the tournament. And it, it, it was a real clear goal, and it was an achievable goal. And he failed to do it. I mean, the, the team, I mean, he would say the team failed to do it. Right. And, and I think that's an interesting takeaway from this is that what responsibility does Jurgen Klinsmann have not only for the individual failures, game failures of the U.S. team? And this has been a terrible year you know, for the U.S. team. I mean, we, you know, the U.S. team did win a couple of friendlies in Europe, beat the Netherlands, beat Germany. Those were very exciting moments, but they were not moments of consequence. And at what point well, does Jurgen Klinsmann in his fifth year as head coach of the United States 
deserve to face some consequences, whether that's maybe not coaching the team and just being, you know, the technical director of the U.S. program, which is what Grant Wall suggested in Sports Illustrated that might be a solution. I don't know if I even want him doing that at this point. I, I, I've been, in general, a, a Klinsman supporter. I like, you know, like he had those friendly wins over the Netherlands and Germany, and yes, they're friendlies and they don't count, but to me they, they meant something. It was like, look, we learned that we can beat Germany. It's possible. Right. We learned that we can beat Netherlands in Netherlands. Um, just like we learned under Klinsman that we can win in the Azteca against Mexico, which no one had ever done. And yet... It was hard to come away from the game on Saturday feeling anything but just profound disappointment with, with him, that, that he, more than anyone else, is responsible for us not achieving the, the goals that we need to do if we're trying to move forward as a country, which we should be able to do. I mean, he, he came in with, you know, pretty much promising that we were going to get to the next level, and it's hard to argue in any way that we're at the next level. I mean, Mexico's better than us right now, and that's, that's really bitter for a fan. Well, isn't aren't the things you like that he has the reputation, the reality of speaking the hard truths? Like he'll say MLS is not as good, and we need more players in Europe. And he'll criticize players on the team, and he's hard, he's rigid. But like when you add it all up, is there much evidence that he has any carrot? He seems all stick, and he doesn't seem so. That's good, you know. Let's whip these guys in the shape. But then when it's like, all right, what about nurturing the players? It doesn't seem to be too much of that. What about coaching guys up and getting you know more? from their skill level. We know Bradley was good before Klinsman. We know that. Right. And we know Altidore was good before Klinsman. So where's the guy where you're like, wow, this guy's really flourished? Seems like all all stick, no carrot, and I don't see much evidence that he's making players better or the system better. I I, I completely agree with that. I And, you know, the positions he takes, you know, with a lot of the stick, where he criticizes MLS and he wants his players to play in Europe – those are political positions that I happen to completely agree with. And I like that he's saying these things. I, I, you know, personal opinion, I feel you should be playing in Europe if you're an American. I don't want you to come back to MLS, you know, before you're 35. But he had no reason not to win the Gold Cup. And he had no reason not to win this game on Saturday if he's accomplishing anything as a coach, you know, ultimately. And, and I, I strongly feel like I'm... I'm just running out of patience with him, which is surprising to me because, like I said, I, I like him. There's this dichotomy. It's that Landon Donovan, you know, whom obviously has an axe to grind with Klinsman, said before the Mexico game that, you know, the coach should be judged the way players are judged. If they don't win, if there's no sign of, 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 of progress, then you have to think about getting rid of them, too. Uh, the U23 American team lost to Honduras, missed that chance to qualify for the Olympics next year. Last week, the mm -hmm. U.S. U-19 team was pummeled by Germany 8-1 to one in I a tournament in Europe. And Klinsman's kid, Jonathan, <laughs> was the goalkeeper for the United States. Um, so, But I think, I think Klinsman's here. I think that Sunil Gulati, the head of the U.S. Soccer Federation, has made a commitment. He's made a big financial commitment to Jurgen Klinsman, too. Right. I think anything short of failing to qualify for the World Cup in Russia means that Klinsman stays through that tournament. I guess the other part of the question is I do too. who would replace yeah. him? Do you have a dream candidate that you'd like to see filling in for him? Uh, Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> Any Harbaugh. Jürgen, Jürgen Harbaugh, the unknown German Harbaugh. Just anyone who could, who could go in there and, and fire them up, you know? Like, it's just like, like you were saying earlier, it's been five years. I don't feel we've progressed as a country to any kind of extra level. And yes, you know, there's variables. Mexico could be having a dream season, but, and we might not have the players. 
but why not? You know, who did we develop in the last five years? I've just, <laughs> I'm just really grumpy, and that might be part of being on the road for um, <laughs> six days straight. <laughs> well, the U.S. plays Costa Rica in a friendly on Tuesday evening. He brought in, uh, Klinsman brought in some more players, got rid of Fabian Johnson. I think we're going to see Tim Howard return to goalkeeper on Tuesday evening. And uh, the thing about being a national soccer team fan, of course, is you stay loyal and you scream and yell and you get upset. But, hey, that, that's progress. Maybe we can credit Jurgen Klinsman for that. We care more than we did 12 years ago. You no, know, we care more than he does. That's what I that's what I feel. Robert Andrew Powell, thank you so much for joining us. All right, well, thank you guys. The very depressed Robert Andrew Powell. Robert Andrew Powell is very sad, but he's still the author of This Love Is Not For Cowards: Salvation and Soccer in Ciudad Juarez. His latest book is Running Away: A Memoir. On Grantland late last month, Charles Pierce opened an essay with these words. Among the spectacles of our sports entertainment complex, there are only two in which people are regularly killed, not accidentally, but directly as a result of that sport's essential identity and, more ghoulishly, that sport's essential public appeal. One of them is auto racing. The other is American football. Of the two, there's only one in which children are now regularly killed. That sport is not auto racing. That sport is American football. Pierce was writing in the aftermath of the third fatality of a high school player this season, a quarterback in New Jersey. Since then, a fourth player, a boy in Washington State, was killed. This is not an unusual number of high school football deaths by any stretch. Kids have been dying playing football since the 19th century. The difference lately is that each elicits national media about fatalities, their causes, and to be sure comments from paid emissaries of the youth football industrial complex. Death has become a convenient fulcrum for assessing the state of football in America. Mike, does the media tone around these incidents feel any different to you? No, not really. Every year there's a story of football deaths. Sometimes it's down year. A couple years ago, it wasn't. This year, it doesn't seem to be. A uh, dozen deaths a year seems about average. Now, now football for boys is the number one participation sport. Over, over a million kids. Over still, a yeah. million boys participate in football. High school. Yeah. Uh, the death toll of the death toll. We shouldn't be using phrases like death toll, but it's a horrible but inevitable outcome of a violent sport and young kids and chants. And this is our national sport. And as such, we have come to accept this. I think that maybe better medical training, more money for experts on staff. But then you got to ask yourself, you know, we're talking about places where probably they're taking away the funding for teachers or they're funding for science labs in the school. So we have to fund extra medical personnel on the sidelines so that the, you know, one in a hundred thousand incident doesn't happen. I don't know. It's a tough I don't know if it's possible to stop it from happening. I'm, I'm on a group email list uh, of a guy named Matt Cheney. I did an afterball about Matt a couple of years ago. He does database searches and he compiles news reports of injury and death in football. And then he emails his findings around. And I asked him last week to assemble recent links to news stories. He sent me about 80. The four deaths were from direct incidents on the fields, but there have been others that may be connected to football, and he puts a subject line on each one. Fatal spleen, fatal neck, fatal heart, fatal cause unknown, fatal brain hemorrhage, fatal blood disorder, fatal equipment crushing, fatals with question marks, cardiac, blood clot, brain, stroke, 
brain bleeds, spine paralyses, temporary paralyses, back paralyses, internal injuries, heat stroke, heat illness. It is like you know, suicide. It is it is absolutely mind numbing to see these come in in a clump. And whether that's small sample size, you know, a million kids are playing high school football. Inevitably, they're going to be injuries or whether that's, oh, my God. Now, this is a sport that does this. You know, you're not sending out these kinds of links for basketball. Um, and maybe we need to rethink this. Emma, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think when you, you know, because over a million kids do play, I, you know, any death is too many. But your kid is still extremely unlikely to die playing football. It's a point zero zero one percent chance. That's obviously still too much. It is a sport. I do think, you know, the the, the much more likely outcome is concussions, which are extremely common. And which happen all the time, even in in high school football. Yeah, and they're not making Matt's uh, email dumps. No, I mean, and that's you know, I and again, not to downplay any any kid dying playing football is is horrible and, and you know, probably too many. Um, it is an inherently violent sport. I was also thinking that part of the issue, I think, is the culture around the game, which is so set on celebrating toughness uh, that it often overlooks. You know, it's it's considered you know wussy to complain about pain if you you know get your spleen. Uh, ruptured or or to ask out if you're dizzy, that kind of thing. Even today, there was an article on NFL.com about the Miami Dolphins' new coach, his name I think is Dan Campbell, and when he was a player, he was on a flight, and his appendix burst, and he didn't say anything until after they landed, and then went back to practice the next week, and that was held up as like, oh, this guy is so tough, look at that, it's just what the Dolphins need, and like, oh, it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you shouldn't, you know, it's not anything shameful to say, hey, I think my appendix burst, you know, can we land so I can go to a hospital? That'll put you back on the depth chart. That, you know, that, I think that kind of attitude really permeates football. I mean, you're talking about a high school kid, it can be very dangerous. There's no I in burst. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. No, it's, um, I do think deaths are still rare, but you have to ask if there's any way that you can even change football enough where it would still be football, where that would never happen. I don't know that there's an answer there. They've tried. Yeah, we, we've had this conversation before. It's the, this issue of should kids be playing football at all, be it before puberty and even clearly into puberty, into high school, um, where you have tremendous ranges in ability level. Um, some kids that can deliver blows that are on a college or professional level and other kids that are five, 340 pounds that are playing, you know, defensive end. Um, and what strikes me, though, as you, as you go through this is is how football is so ingrained in the culture. You know, this is a, these are common reactions when kids die. But you read through these stories and there are all these shared themes. It was God's will. It was his time. Um, it, it, it wasn't the game. Football has gotten safer. There was nothing out of the ordinary about the play. We always teach kids to keep their heads up. We put safety first and foremost. He took water breaks. We teach proper tackling. You know, the, 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 there's almost a narrative now that surrounds the sport that the the proponents of this heads up trying to teach kids to keep their head up when they tackle that the NFL is funding and organizations like uh, Pop Warner and USA Football have have adopted to varying degrees. So you've got this narrative now that really has penetrated, I think, the average football parent and football kid that, hey, we're making the game better. Well, maybe they are. And maybe heads up tackling wasn't used in some of the cases. And people will often grasp for things that aren't true to organize their thoughts around mm -hmm. death with 
tough thing to deal with. So just because they say those things, it doesn't mean those things aren't true. And we don't really have good statistics about how deadly football was 20 years ago. But I would assume we'll be more deadly. We didn't know anything about head injuries and we denied kids water. So that probably, you know, cut the death toll by uh, as a percentage by a significant degree. And plus, the national media exists in a much more organized way now. So your list where they, your guy has, the, uh, has assembled all the reports, I mean, it would be hard to get that assemblage of reports. So yeah. we don't know if progress has been made. But it's not a cliche that says one is too many. Although, you know, I was looking at rugby injuries, and you can say one is too many, and they had a list of five people who died from rugby injuries. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's five a year. No, no, no. It was five since the earliest one was 2006. And they were going throughout. There was a kid in Uganda, kid in the U.S., kid in Canada. So it does seem that football, a million participants or not, is a lot more deadly. You know, the numbers were certainly higher for deaths in the United States in the 60s and 70s in American football. And I think the main reason for that was that trauma care has improved so much. Yeah. Uh, medical care has improved. Um, a lot of cases still go unreported. So even when you see the streams of reporting in the media, and there are people you could follow on Twitter, at ConcernedMom9, at Kimberly Archie, who tweet out football-related horrors in real time often. Um, and you, you get the sense that no matter what we do, look, it's inherent in the sport and, and that's it. And what you have now, I think, is this sort of public relations and medical debate where the NFL and others are funding to save the sport at the grassroots level. Um, and some of it in the guise of and some of it genuine to do more research into injuries. Um, and you've got helmet companies trying to tell us that better equipment is on the way, which is a conversation that's been going on in this sport for over a century. Um, but we're really entrenched now. And I think that at this high school level is where you know, the, the rubber meets the road in terms of whether football is safe to, to still be played by children. People have clearly, you know, decided that they're willing to accept the risks, at which point I don't know what you can really do about it other than make sure that everyone knows, you know, Here's how dangerous it actually is. Here's what could happen. Here are the lasting effects of, of you know, of brain trauma. I mean, CTE has been found even in high school players who've who've died. Um, so even at that young an age, you could you can be doing permanent damage. But if you tell people that, and they still want to play, you know, I don't I don't know that you you know I can't imagine us ever banning football. I'm not even sure that I would want that to happen. I mean, that's you know fairly extreme. Uh, it means, you know, I guess the, there's a limited number of things you can do when people are so into the sport that they're willing to, to accept even the risk of death to keep playing. All right. Now it is time for after balls. Albania beat Armenia 3-0 on Sunday to earn qualification for the first time to the European Championship. As listeners know, I do love Albania and Verhoja, the repressive dictator, good old Shamal Staffa Stadium. That day I was taken into police custody for photographing a building in Tirana. Albania's qualification included a shock 1-0 road win over Portugal, but also a 3-0 forfeit over Serbia in a game that was abandoned after fights broke out on the field and in the stands when a drone carrying a flag with the insignia of Greater Albania was lowered onto the field. It was a classic Balkan soccer moment. So in honor of Albania's march to Euro 2016 and the dude who provoked the Serbs and who was arrested before the rematch in Albania last week on gun possession charges, let's do Albanian drones. Emma. Yes. What is your Albanian drone? <laughs> That's actually not a bad term for it. Um, my Albanian drone with the Houston Astros in the playoffs for at least one more night. Um, 
I wanted to bring up one of my favorite, very obscure, terrible baseball movies, which is Astros-related. As a background, I'm a big fan of bad movies. A bunch of my friends and I do a bad movie night about once a week. And we get together, have a few beers, try to find the worst thing we can possibly watch. And maybe like six or seven years ago, we watched a movie called Night Game, which is a 1989 police thriller starring Roy, Roy Schneider, uh, which involves a serial killer who is influenced by Houston Astros games. Uh, Zach, can you play the first clip? For Detective Mike Seeger, America's favorite pastime has just become a matter of life and death. We've got six women killed over a two and a half months period. Want to get this guy? What is that, a cleaver? So that's that's Night Game. Uh, the plot of Night Game is fairly amazing. There's a serial killer on the loose. He's killing blonde women with a hook in what turns out to be a pattern of one movie every time a certain Astros pitcher wins a night game at home. So that's his hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's, uh, and eventually Roy Scheider's character figures out the pattern. Now he's he's also presented as like a likable straight shooting kind of guy, but he's dating his ex-girlfriend's daughter, just as like a minor plot point. <laughs> anyway, it's not his fault. He's a good actor. I like Roy Scheider. He's, he's doing his best, but... Here's the thing, and I, I apologize because I'm going to ruin the ending here, but that's sort of what makes the movie amazing. Um, it turns out the killer is a former Astros pitcher who got cut from spring training, uh, left the stadium all depressed, got hit by a bus, lost his hand, had it replaced by a hook, and now he kills whenever his replacement wins a game at all. He should have gone into being manager so he could give the guys the hook. <laughs> exactly. There, there's so many great puns. They don't even, they don't even take the time to really, really fully explore really. that. It's the kind of movie where there's a lot of blondes, you know, running off to dark, abandoned houses on the beach to try to get away from the killer. But anyway, it's, it's a good cautionary tale for AJ Hinch. You should be careful about who he cuts from spring training. Um, but if you're looking for a, a baseball movie that's, you know, I would say maybe a little better than The Natural, um, you could could check out this one and uh, and get your Astros fix if they get knocked out tonight. So was you know, it? Yo, this was 1989, Emma. Yes. Yogi Berra was a coach on the Astros, so I think, again, there's product placement here on your part, isn't it? Also, he should have been a suspect, obviously. Was yeah. the, can you reveal it, was the pitcher Joaquin Andahar? <laughs> Former Astros pitcher? Now, one of the many great things about this movie is the pitcher is like this, you know, schlubby guy who, you know, looks like he could never in a million years pitch in a major league game, even, you know. Yeah. He's not even anywhere near Bartolo Colon's level as far as At, at best, fitness. he had a 12 to 6 curve. <laughs> <laughs> this this is a guy without a slutter. This is a guy. This is a guy without a. What do they call that one? The slurve. slurve. Yeah, no there slurve, no slutter. No, no wonder he was so bitter. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I highly recommend that one. It, it was at the time not not on DVD. It was only on VHS. But now I checked this morning, and it actually is available on DVD and Blu-ray. So that's exciting. There you go. And the Astros roster very keeping in, in with the theme of the film. Had a guy named Clancy, <laughs> and a guy named Mason, like Perry. <laughs> there you go. Now Mike Seeger has to catch the killer before the killer heads for home. Mike, what's your Albanian drone? I'm offering you a special guide to how to process Cal Ripken during the baseball playoffs. Now, Cal Ripken, beloved guy, there's a league named after him. It's the Cal Ripken League. And, of course, he played a lot of games in a row and then high-fived the whole stadium. So He we started love... the league, so he named it after himself. Sure. So, although, hearing what I hear now from Cal Ripken, you got to wonder if that's a Tony Danza thing, where he can only play characters named Tony, because the rumor was he didn't know to respond to anyone else in a different name. It's not true. I saw Tony Danza in the Iceman comic. 
He was excellent as the bartender. So anyway, back to Cal Ripken. I likened him to the Matt Damon character in Team America World Police, the, the puppet who only said, I'm Matt Damon. He's not the most erudite of analysts. And I think we saw this during, I have no idea what went on game during game one, what things came out of his mouth because I was at the stadium. But it dawned on me that during game two, as there was a discussion of pitch framing or then Ron Darling turned to Cal and said, or what did you used to call it? Presentation? And he said, oh yeah, that's one of those phrases. And then there was two sentences between them. And then he said, wait, what did we used to call it? And then Ron reminded him, you called it presentation. This is the entire premise of what we're talking about. We're trying to draw you into a conversation, Cal. So by game three, you could see some TV tricks that they employed. For instance, Ron was asked, hey, what do you think of this Utley play? And he talked about what he thought of this Utley play. Whereas Cal was given the task of introducing the defensive lineup, which is just to read the names on the screen, pronouncing Ligaris, Ligaris, or the other way around, and a couple of other minor mishaps. So Cal has to be brought along by the hand. Cal, I, I, I ask myself, why am I not objecting to Cal? He really doesn't give much insight. Why do I think it's all kind of funny? And I guess it's because the Mets are doing well, and it's framed within the context of, he, the guy seems lovable. He doesn't seem obnoxious like a Gruden type or like a former jock who needs to be relevant by showing how tough he is. I mean, when he said, I think it was a clean play or I think it was an acceptable play with the Utley slide, there wasn't Cal trying to to burnish his credentials or to increase his speaking fees. That's just Cal being Cal. The other last way I would recommend that you process the things Cal Ripken says, so he's often given semi-scripted things to say. He's often really brought along by the hand by Ron and Ernie to orient him two or three times what the conversation is about. But the other thing he will do is he'll say what the third baseman needs to do on this play or what the outfielder needs to do. And those things always work best if you mentally preface them with the phrase, kids out there, if you're watching, he says about 13 of those things a day. And if you say to yourself, kids out there, if you're watching, and then listen to what Cal says, it's not bad. I would tape them and play them to my 12-year-old, but I wouldn't tape the parts about Chase Utley making a killer slide and it being a good, clean play. Oh, Stefan, what's your Albanian drone? There's a new football helmet. It's got a hexagonal cutout on the crown and recessed panels on either side. You may have noticed it in games. And that is the Rydell Speedflex. It debuted last year, and the design is supposed to help disperse the force of impacts to the head. Green Bay Packers running back Eddie Lacy wore what the blog fan cited called a, quote, special concussion-proof helmet in the team's 2014 opener. Lacy was concussed anyway. But the myth of the special helmet as the antidote to brain injury has been with us for a long, long time. Last year, for instance, Denver wideout Wes Welker, quote, had to be outfitted with a special helmet after his latest concussion, Yahoo reported, and his teammate running back C.J. Anderson, the CBS affiliate in Denver said, was wearing a special helmet like Welker. I was turned on to the special helmet by Matt Cheney. Last week, he sent around a few links to stories about the helmet in football history, specifically the special helmet. So let's go back in time. Associated Press, 2003. The Pittsburgh Steelers downplayed first-round draft pick Troy Polamalu's history of concussions, then gave the hard-hitting safety a special helmet. The Steelers said they had no fears about Polamalu's durability, especially after a neurosurgeon determined that he had no lasting damage. 
Not quite sure how they figured that out before his career had begun. Three days after the fact, the AP reported in 2000, Kurt Warner's concussion is old news. The St. Louis Rams quarterback said he'd been headache-free for two days and would start Saturday's wildcard playoff game against New Orleans. Warner plans no special precautions such as wearing a special helmet. How could anyone turn down a special helmet, I say? In 1995, Rams quarterback Chris Miller didn't. After a fourth concussion in two years, Miller, quote, is to wear a special helmet, a pump version akin to basketball's Reebok pump. It offers a more custom fit. A year before that, the Baltimore Sun reported that Washington football player Frank Wycheck suffered vertigo after his second concussion in a year and, quote, may have to wear a special helmet. Cleveland coach Sam Retiglia had enormous faith in the special helmet. In 1981, his quarterback Brian Sipe had some, quote, visual problems and some trouble trying to recall what had happened after he was hit the previous Sunday, the AP reported. No worries, though, because doctors said Sipe didn't have a concussion and cleared him to play right away. And why wouldn't they? Retigliano said Sipe wears a special helmet and he does neck exercises. In 1974, the Winona Daily News reported that Winona High quarterback Jim Lee was a senior Southpaw wearing a special helmet because of a mild concussion suffered in the previous week's loss to Lacrosse Central. In 1969, Pennsylvania high schooler Gary Dimenick wore a special helmet for added protection because he has been the victim of head injuries almost every season. The new headpiece the Shenandoah Evening Herald wrote is one like many of the colleges have put into use this fall. It contains small packets of water and an air chamber which is pumped up every game to seal it snugly around the head. Very, very special helmet. 1960 Williams College halfback John Newton, quote, tackles with such ferocity that he wears a special helmet to protect him from concussions, the Berkshire Eagle reported. 1942 New York Giants running back Tuffy Lehmans would return wearing a special helmet against Washington a month after he received a head concussion against Chicago. So, quoth the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, best part of that story is that the Giants are called the Mara Men after owner Wellington Mara. Got to bring that one back. Finally, 1937, the AP reported some good news. St. Louis University went through an intensive drill in pass attack and defense before the Billikens' big game against Grinnell. The squad is not at its best because of injuries, but news that Woody Hermony, fullback, would be able to play if necessary decreased the feeling of uneasiness about the contest. Hermony suffered a slight brain concussion last week, and if he plays, he will wear a special helmet. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thanks to Emma Spann for joining us this week. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.